Our scripture text today is, as you just saw, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And our, some of the members of our A-team, our disabilities ministry, volunteered and were so gracious to read to our scripture reading for us today. They read verses 7 through 10. We're going to look at uh, beyond that. We're going to look at verses 1 through 10. So if you have your Bible with me, open to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Just a couple of chapters left in our journey through this book of 2 Corinthians. Let's pray again. Father, would you guard the words of my mouth. I'm going to speak what is true. Holy Spirit, come and be our teacher, our instructor. As we think about suffering and your purposes in it, we're so aware of our need for you. So we pray that you would help us to receive what you have for us today. Give us listening ears and attentive hearts to the voice of your spirit speaking to us through your word. We submit ourselves to your word because it's true. Make us faithful to it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Like I said, we're going to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Now you remember, or maybe you remember, uh, that when we started this journey through the book of 2 Corinthians, I said that the book is really one of the things that it does is it really gives us a, a master's degree, if you will, in suffering in difficulty. It's a topic that Paul comes back to again and again and again throughout the book. And so we have reached now what I would consider to be the pinnacle of God's message about suffering in the book of 2 Corinthians, uh, written through Paul. And so we engage again with this not easy topic of suffering. I, I want to say something about when we touch on this topic, often sort of within the church, whenever we, not just us, but sort of the church broadly, Whenever we touch on this topic, I think you'll hear sentiments that go something like this. You know, this is easier said than done, or it's easier to talk in theory uh, about suffering and God's purposes in suffering than it is to deal with it in reality. Would, would you all agree with that? I think that's totally true. I think that's certainly true that as we think about, yeah, to think about it is definitely harder than to live it out. But I want to correct that in just one small way, that when we have this idea to say that, you know, this is easier in theory than it is in reality. That the thing we need to recognize is that God's word is not just a good theory about suffering. What God's word says about suffering is the fundamental truth about that topic. And because it is fundamentally true, we deal with it differently than we deal with theories. You see, when you come up against a theory, uh, what do you do with a the theory? You test it out in your life, right? You test it out over repetition. You say, does this play out over time? And so if you have theories about suffering, then what you do is you come into your life and you walk through your life and then you see if the theories that you have read about hold true over time according to your experience. That's what you do with a theory. But if you understand that what's, what God's word teaches about suffering is not a theory, but is the fundamental truth and the final word about that subject, then what you do is you say, this is true, and I must learn to, to bring it into my life, to appropriate that truth into my life and decisions when I encounter suffering. Do you see the difference? So it is very true that it is easier, it is easier to comprehend the truth about suffering than it is to appropriate that truth. There's no doubt about that. Easier to comprehend than to appropriate it. But let's not slip into a way of thinking that says that God's word and what it says about suffering is somehow a theory which I can either accept or reject based upon the experience of 
my life. Rather, it goes the other way around. What God's word says is true about suffering, and I must orient my life and the difficulties and suffering in my life around that truth. Now, that's a fundamentally important place to begin, and so I, I wanted to remind us of that. Now, when I say it's easier to comprehend truths about suffering than to appropriate them, what I mean is this, and what I want to encourage you is this. The truths that 2 Corinthians and many other places in, in God's word speak about suffering and difficulty, the places where it speaks about it, the truth has to be hard fought for. And I don't know if you know what I mean when I say that. Because sometimes we think if we hear truth, that then that should be enough. We'll hear it, and then it will sink down. But just hearing truth about any given topic, particularly one as difficult as suffering, one that, that hurts us as much and causes us to have to deal with as many questions and emotional turmoil, as much emotional turmoil as a thing like suffering does, you cannot just listen to someone talk about it. You must fight to appropriate that truth into your life. If you're going to embrace what God's word says about suffering, it won't just be because he turns a nice phrase. It will be because you fight hard to embrace that truth and to live according to it. Don't slip into the way of thinking that says, just because something's true, I will naturally gravitate towards it and embrace it. Do you know that's not true of us? Truth must be hard fought for. Truth must be hard fought for. It's why people who teach must teach hard things. It's why those of us who hear truth proclaimed, must fight to appropriate it, right? It's one of the reasons why, and this is just a small thing that we do at the church, it's why when we do our life groups, we want those life groups to be sermon-based. It's not because we think you need to, you know, it's not because we think you need double doses of the sermons, but it's because we know that we can only appropriate and apply so many things at a time. And so one of the things that we do is we want you to hear the truth proclaimed here, and then we want you to go wrestle with it with a community of people. We want you to have to go and wrestle with, how do I apply this? How do I live this out? What do we do together to make this happen, to live it out? Rather than just move on from one fact to another fact to another fact, to become information collectors about God. We don't want you to be an information collector about God. We want you to be a person who appropriates and applies truth and fights hard for that appropriation. You guys with me? You follow me? That's what we're looking for. So let me do this. Let me give you just a a reminder of all that we've seen now in 2 Corinthians as it pertains to suffering. And I was, as I went back through it again this week, I was overjoyed to be reminded of these truths and it just made me want to preach another sermon on each one of them, but I won't do that, so don't worry. In chapter one, verses three and four, we saw this. Suffering grants God the opportunity to comfort us, which he has promised to do. You remember at the beginning of the letter, Paul said, the God of all comfort will comfort you in all your affliction so that you may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the same comfort with which you have been comforted. Now, what was the common word in that phrase? He has promised to comfort you. He has promised to comfort you. Cling to that promise and, and cling to the, the here, here's what it looks like to fight hard for that, to recognize and to look for where and how God is comforting you in the midst of your suffering because he has promised to do so. Chapter one, verse nine, 
we learn that suffering makes us rely on God. That's what Paul says very simply. He says, look, these hardships are brought to us so that we might not rely on ourselves, but that we would rely on God. Chapter 1, verse 9. Chapter 4, verse 7 through 12. <coughs> we heard this. Suffering propels God's mission forward. In other words, he's saying, look, Paul's essentially talking about what he has endured, the difficulty he's undergone, and he's saying all of that, all of it was intended to accomplish the purposes of God. None of it was meaningless. None of it was just happenstance. All of it was a part of God bringing about his purposes of redeeming a people for himself. Suffering is highly valuable in the accomplishment of the mission of God. Chapter 4, verse 16 through 18, maybe my favorite. We learn that suffering is making us more glorious in eternity. I don't know if you remember the phrase in chapter 4, verse 16 through 18, when he says, it is producing in us, this suffering, this difficulty, is producing in us an eternal weight of glory, which is beyond all comprehension, an eternal weight of glory. In other words, when you suffer, when you suffer, what is happening in that moment is you are becoming an increasingly glorious being in your eternal dwelling. You are becoming better fit and better equipped for the place where you will spend all your eternity. You are gaining an eternal weight of glory. And here's what I love about that. That word for glory, I was talking to some of the elders about this yesterday morning. There's a Greek word and there's a Hebrew word that are most often used in the scriptures. The Greek word is this word doxa, and it, it literally means the visible manifestation of, of the goodness. Right? So it's this kind of, it's kind of a up in the sky kind of an idea. You know, it's like there's this idea of like it's it's light, radiant light, blinding light is the idea of the glory. When we say God has glory, the Greek word, that's what it means, but the Hebrew word, which I like even better. Is the word kavod. And the word kavod means weight. It means to have immense weight of character. Have you ever said the phrase like his or her word has weight to it? You're using the phrase like glory. You're saying that their character so impresses upon their word that it's, it's rock solid. Therefore, they have weight. So in the Old Testament, when we said, it's such an earthy idea, isn't it? When we said God has glory in the Old Testament, what they were saying is God has immense weight of character. Everything he does shapes everything around him. In other words, he's so weighty, he, it's as if he has his own gravitational pull. That's the, that's the Hebrew word for glory. So now get what Paul has just said. Suffering produces in us an eternal weight of weightiness. Right? That's what he's essentially saying. You become the kind of person that is marked by the character of God through and through. You become a weighty person through suffering. Chapter 5, right after that, verses 1 through 10, we learn that suffering makes us long for our eternal dwelling. Where Paul says, we know that if the tent in which we dwell, using a metaphor, the tent in which we dwell, this body, is beat up, if it's ravaged, if it is, if it is uh, diminished, we know that we have an eternal dwelling in the heavens prepared for us by God. And my friends, these bodies wear out. If you're young, you don't feel it as much, but it's coming. They wear out. That's just what they're designed to do. No one makes it out alive. 
We're all going to wear out. And as that happens, we recognize, ah, yes, something better is waiting for me. And boy, do we need to know that and appropriate that truth when it comes to suffering and enduring difficulty. Chapter 6, verse 4 through 10 reminds us that suffering verifies the authenticity of servants of Jesus. That it's those who suffer for the name of Jesus, who do not shrink back in the face of difficulty, who are willing to endure condemnation, who are willing to endure being ridiculed, belittled for the name of Jesus. Those are the ones that verify themselves as authentic. You know, that, that stamp goes on them and says, Authent- authenticated, follower of Jesus, willing to suffer for the sake of the gospel in the name of Jesus. That's what we've learned up to this point. Now we come to what I would consider, as I said, the pinnacle lesson on suffering. The reason I call it the pinnacle lesson is because I think it is the most counterintuitive of all the lessons we've just heard. All the other ones, I think as you read through them, you go, okay, yeah, I get that difficulty produces sort of a weightiness of character, grows your character. I can see that. I've, I've lived that out, in fact. I've seen where having to suffer long for something made it me, you know, fuller of character. Or, you know, yes, I've experienced the comfort of God. It would make sense that a good father would come in in the midst of, of my suffering and would comfort me. That makes sense. According to this word, the final word on suffering in 2 Corinthians is this, is that suffering is the pathway to power. Suffering is the pathway to power. And it's not the pathway you might think because it's the pathway that makes you weak that then leads to power. And so it's completely counterintuitive. In fact, most of what Paul is going to say here absolutely goes against everything that our natural minds want to embrace and accept. To say, oh yes, absolutely. To say weakness is strength. Doesn't make a ton of sense, but God says it is so. Let's examine why he says it's so. Look with me, if you will. Let's read verses 1 through 10. Paul says, I must go on boasting, though there is nothing to be gained by it. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. Okay, let me pause right there real quick and remind us that last week we were in chapter 11. What we saw at the end of chapter 11 is that Paul is dealing with these super apostles, these These teachers who have come into Corinth and they've said to the Corinthians, we are eloquent of speech, we are wise, we're philosophically studied. Uh, We've got a lot of people with money backing us because we're so gifted that everyone kind of wants to be on our train, so to speak. And they've impressed the Corinthians, but they're teaching false truth. And so Paul is coming against those, what he calls sarcastically super apostles, coming against them and saying, look, you're abandoning truth for the sake of a bo- he calls a boasted mission for people who are just kind of full of themselves and they're impressing you with all their sort of worldly acumen. And I want to tell you something different. So what Paul, how Paul ends the chapter in chapter 11, says, okay, look, followers of Jesus don't boast. That's silliness. They boast only in God, not in themselves. But let's just play this game for a second, if you will. I mean, that's kind of essentially what he said. Let's just play this game for a second. If they have something to boast in, let me tell you what I have to boast in. And then you would think he would go on to, I, I am studied, I was a Pharisee. I'm the, he gives a little bit of that. And then he proceeds to, to just track right through all the suffering he has endured for the sake of the gospel. I was shipwrecked and afloat a day and a night at sea. I was beaten with rods. I was stoned. I received the 40 lashes, lashes minus one three times. He just goes on. Actually, I think it's five times. Sorry, five times. He goes on and on and on. And clearly what he's doing is he's pointing out how foolish it is to boast. He's saying, this is silliness. He's like, I'm talking like, he actually says, I'm talking like an idiot is essentially what he says when I do this. But if I'm going to boast, here's what I'm going to boast in. All the things that you think make me look weak, 
I'm going to tell you are the things that make me strong. And he's going to continue that idea here in chapter 12. Now, he's just picking right, right up where he left off at the end of chapter 11. And he says, I'm going to go on boasting, though there is nothing to be gained by it. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. Okay, so now we're going to graduate from like all that Paul has suffered for the sake of the gospel. We're going to graduate to a discussion of his, his engagement with God one-to-one. -one. Here's what he's going to tell us. <clears throat> I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. That's the word for the place where God dwells. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast. But on my own behalf, I will not boast except of my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from being too elated or too conceited by the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh. Okay, let's just pause there for a second. Because you realize what he was doing at the beginning. He said, look, I won't boast in myself. I'll boast about this guy who had these revelations from God that were so profound and powerful. And then when he gets to verse 7, he outs himself that he's the guy he's talking about. Did you see that? I got this thorn in the flesh because the revelations I had, which I just said <laughs> belonged to somebody else, he's essentially using a, a rhetorical tool to say, look, it's foolish to boast this way, so I'll boast in this guy over here as if it wasn't him, but it really was him. And then when he reveals in verse 7 that, yeah, this was me who had these revelations, it's all further intended to make the Corinthians realize how foolish it is that they are watching these super apostles boast in themselves in, in all their power, and all their, you know, strength, and all their eloquence. Paul goes, look, let me show you what you really boast in. Now, let's, pick, let's keep going. So verse 7, <clears throat> a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being too conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. And we all hope the next sentence is, and the Lord answered my prayer and took it away. <clears throat> Verse 9. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, here's Paul's conclusion. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ... When I am content with weaknesses, uh, for the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Weakness is the pathway to power. The question in front of all of us is how powerful do we want to be? Powerful enough to endure suffering that would make us weak so that we might have the power of Christ rest upon us because it seems like it's a prerequisite, doesn't it, when you read that? Therefore, I will boast in my weaknesses. In other words, I will actively embrace my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Let me give you five things that, are, that relate power and suffering. Number one is this. God has a power to give us, to give you, which is greater than the power of heavenly visions. 
which cannot be uttered, but it can only be given through suffering. And just think about that for a second. He has a power that he wants to cause to rest upon you, to flow through you, but that power can only come through suffering. Look at what happens first. Paul says, I'm going to go on boasting about revelations in the Lord, right? That's what he said. I'm going to go on boasting about revelations in the Lord. He proceeds to say that he had received a vision from God that was so profound, he wasn't sure if he had been ushered up into heaven in his body or whether it was just his spirit that was ushered up into heaven. Like he was carried away in the spirit and saw something. And you would think, that's awesome. If you're an apostle or messenger of God, that's a pretty powerful thing to get, a vision into the heavenly place where God dwells and to see him as if face to face and then to be able to come back. And what would you want to do if you got that vision or revelation? You'd probably want to tell some people, right? You will not believe what I saw. And what Paul says is it's so profound that God said, I'm not to utter a syllable of it to anybody. I can tell you I had the vision, but I can't tell you anything about the content of the vision. It's almost as if to say it was so unbelievable, so unbelievably good to gaze upon the person of God in paradise that God said to me, just shut that one up and lock it away. That's for you and me. That's not for you. That's not for the mission. By the way, that's hugely encouraging to those of you who teach. Like I get up here and teach. It's important for me to remember that not everything God shows me is something I need to tell everybody else. Because if you're a teacher, don't you find that everything you learn, you're immediately thinking about how can I teach that to somebody else? That's part of the nature of a teacher is you, you receive something and you immediately are thinking, how, how do I dispense that out to somebody else? And sometimes God says, you know what, we're just going to shut that one up. Because this is not about you being effective for me as a teacher. It's not about you being effective for me as an apostle. This is about me planting myself in you in a profound way and reshaping you. So there's intimate relationship. And so Paul is, is saying, I, I received a a vision, a revelation that I can't even, I can't even utter it. I can't, I can't speak about it. Now, that kind of thing you would imagine, you would imagine receiving that kind of a vision, that's going to make you spiritually powerful, right? I mean, how do you become spiritually powerful? Praying, interacting with God, uh, engaging with spiritual truth. What more could you ask for to become immensely spiritually powerful? Well, apparently, the thing you need to really become powerful is not visions and revelations. It's suffering. Because what does God do next? He says, I'm going to give you a thorn in the flesh to keep you humble. I'm going to give you this because it is the true pathway to power. The power I want to reside in you and to cause to flow through you, it's not enough to just give you visions and revelations. Those are great, and I would, I would love for God to give us all deeper insight into his word, deeper insight into the things of his spirit as we pray, that we would know we are having a direct back and forth with God. How rich is that? But it's not enough. So he says, I, the, the power I want to flow through you, Paul, is going to require suffering. So I'm going to give you a thorn in the flesh. Now, here's the next thing. God and Satan have competing purposes in suffering. God and Satan have competing purposes in suffering. Look at what he says in verse 7. 
He says, so to keep me from being too conceited or too elated by the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh. Okay, we just said that. A messenger of Satan to harass me. And then he repeats the idea to keep me from becoming conceited or becoming too elated, right? The idea is the thorn is there to keep him humble. You guys get that, right? The thorn is there to keep him humble and dependent upon the Lord. And so here's the interesting thing. Clearly, we've identified that this thorn is a messenger of who? It's a messenger of Satan. Friends, you need to know that Satan intends to use suffering to destroy faith. That is his agenda and his ambition. He wants to take the suffering that we endure and cause it to crush our faith, our trust, our deeply rooted belief that God is for us and that he is powerful. That's Satan's ambition when it comes to suffering. Destroy faith faith. He's like a heat-seeking missile. That's what he's after. He wants to take that suffering that you're enduring right now, and he wants to cause it to crush your faith. But here's the beauty of what just happened. Because while Paul acknowledges, and God writing this acknowledges us, this thorn is a messenger from Satan. That's the direct agent of this work. But guess who stands above and behind Satan, sovereignly overseeing all of this? God himself. Because we're told the thorn in the flesh was given in order to keep him humble. Both the beginning and the end of the verse say that. In other words, to build up godly character. Now, does Satan ever intend through suffering to build up your godly character? That's never his ambition. He wants to destroy you and to destroy your faith. So who must be talking there when we say the purpose behind this thorn is that you would become humble? You'd be guarded from conceit. Who's doing the guarding from conceit through the giving of the thorn? Who would that be? That would be God himself. My friends, here's what I, I, here's what I want to encourage you in, okay? You need a deeply held and rooted belief in the sovereignty of God when it comes to your suffering. Yes, here we have Satan as the direct agent. But could God have taken this thorn away at any point had he wanted to? Absolutely. Let me tell you, friends, that a lot of times in the church, what we do is we're afraid to make God culpable for the suffering we endure. We are afraid to blame him for it or hold him accountable for it as if to do that would be to make him look poor. But really all we've done is undercut our ability to deal with suffering. Because if you know that there's a sovereign God who has purposes in your suffering that are immensely powerful and are working themselves out, then you can say, yes, He is ultimately in control, and if he chooses to bring that into my life, I don't say this glibly, okay? I don't say this as if it's easy. But if you know and have built into you a deep conviction that God is in control of all things and that when I suffer, it's because he has either caused or allowed it, and he could take it away but chooses not to. God is not afraid to be culpable for our suffering. He is not. Because he has purposes and intentions which we may not understand. But if you really want to walk through suffering and have the power of God poured out upon you as a result of that suffering, you're going to have to believe that God's in control. Because the second you take that that out, the second you take it away, what you are left with is a topsy-turvy world that has no guarantee that anything good is being produced through the suffering. All you have is an agent of evil who wants to harm you and destroy your faith, and you have no guarantee what happens through that suffering. But the second you you embrace 
that God is not afraid to say, yes, I'm behind that. Whether I use Satan as my direct agent and he is unwittingly serving my purposes. He thinks he's destroying your faith. I'm bringing this thorn in the flesh because what it's going to do is it's going to strengthen your godly character. I'm doing it for that. He's a fool and thinks he's going to destroy your faith. And I'm back here working and know exactly what's going on. You, you with me? You follow me? You need it. You need it to walk through the wall of suffering. Now, number three, we should not seek suffering, but nor should we run from it. Here's what I mean by that, okay? God is big enough to bring into your life or to allow the enemy to bring into your life the suffering that he chooses to have you endure. You don't need to go search it out. God doesn't need you to go turn over every rock to go, how can I find some suffering to inflict upon myself? When he has intentions and purposes that he wants to bring about in your life and he deems that to put a thorn in your flesh will be how that is best accomplished, he will bring it. Look at what Paul does in verse 8. I love this because it's a gracious instruction for us. He says, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this. Not once, not twice, three times. I pleaded, Lord, take it away. Okay, so there's some good instruction. We can, we can pray, Lord, take it away, right? We can say, Lord, this is hard. This is not, we need to understand, this is not Paul having something inconvenient to his ministry. This is Paul in deep pain. Lord, would you please, please take it away. That's a good prayer to pray. Now God comes into that conversation with Paul. Again, another reason why we must cultivate our prayer lives. We must cultivate hearing the voice of God, speaking to us through his spirit in our prayer lives so that it's not just one-sided. It's not just me saying, God, here's what I need, or me saying, God, here's what's going on in my life. But it's me saying that and then saying, God, I expect that this is a two-way street. We're, we're talking. You're going to speak to me through your spirit. Because then God says, now he, I don't know if he says it out loud to Paul or if he communicates in his spirit. But Paul knows that what God, how God responds to him is to say what? No. God, please take it away. God, please take it away. God, please take it away. No. Now look, I'm a dad. If you're a dad, you know, when your kids hurt, what do you try and do? Make it stop. Try and make it stop. God is saying no to his son, Paul, here, because he knows. He knows what is best. He knows what is right. He knows what is good. Don't hear when God says, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. I hope you don't hear that as, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is perfect in weakness. Okay, Paul, deal with it. That you hear a good dad saying, I know. Buddy, I know. But my grace is sufficient for you. weakness. You're going to be okay. Okay. 
So he brings the suffering. He says, my grace is sufficient. My power is made perfect in weakness. Now, the fourth truth I want you to hear is this. God is able to give us enough grace. God is able to give us enough grace so that we can endure the suffering. God's response is a really wonderful response because he says, my grace, my unmerited favor is sufficient. That word sufficient means, that word sufficient means enough, right? It may be obvious, right? But it means enough. In other words, just enough. Not more than you need, not less than you need. In every moment of suffering, this is God's promise to you. When he says, my grace is sufficient for you, he's not promising to pour out upon you something that will cause you to go, ah, that suffering is nothing. What he promises is to meet you in that space and to give you spiritual strength and comfort that is enough to get you to go one step further. And one step further. That every time you've got to take the next step, you will find a sufficient resource of grace to enable you to do it. It won't feel good. It won't feel easy. But it will be enough. Now here's why I tell you that, friends. Because you have to look for it. You have to look for the marks of his sufficient grace all around you. Because it will be easy, you know this, right? It will be easy in the midst of suffering to focus on the pain and all that is not being given to you. All that is not being done. The thorn is not being taken away. You have to look around and see the evidence surrounding you because this is true. It's not a theory. This will happen. God is not a liar. He will give sufficient grace. And if that's true, then you have to look for it. Because our eyes tend to go right to the pain. We need to cling to this. Okay, he said that his grace will be sufficient in the midst of my suffering. When he doesn't remove the thorn, sometimes he does. Praise him. But when he doesn't remove the thorn, he has said there will be enough grace. There will be enough. I believe there will be enough. Sometimes it may be hard to see how it's enough, but it will be enough. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. That word perfect means to come to completion, to come to the pinnacle. Think about that for a moment. He says his power comes to its fullness, its completion, its pinnacle. It comes to that in weakness. And my power will flow through you. There will be sufficient grace. And then the power will come. And it will flow through you. And that's our fifth thing. We have to accept the weakness. Once you hear this, we have to accept the weakness our suffering produces in us. So suffering makes us weaker at least by human standards, less able to accomplish things our own, less capable, less strong. We have to accept and embrace that weakness that suffering produces in us in order for the power of God to rest on us. Here's what he says in verse, end of verse 9. Therefore, 
I will boast all the more gladly. In other words, I will embrace the fact that I have been made weak by this suffering so that, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. In other words, what he's saying is there is a direct relationship between my embracing the weakness that now I have as a result of my suffering and the, and the power of God resting upon me. So church, the question becomes, do you want the power of God to rest upon you? If you want the power of God to rest upon you and flow through you, it seems to me there is no other way than not to seek out suffering, but when God brings it to say, you know what you are doing. And I pray that the result of this would be that you would cause your power to rest upon me in such a profound way that I never dreamed I could experience it this way. And if you treasure the power of God pouring through you and on you, if you treasure that most, you will unlock the key to walking in suffering because you will have found suffering's purpose, its end. Look, friends, people walk away from the idea of belief in God and from Jesus Christ specifically all the time because of this thing called the problem of evil. There's pain and suffering in the world, and God says he's good. So how can those two things be? If he's all-powerful and there's suffering in the world, there's evil in the world, which they're equating those two, then how is he good? He's either not all-powerful because he can't stop it, or he's not good because he would stop it if he's good. There's the flaw in that argument because it doesn't acknowledge that God might have purposes for suffering, that are better than if he were to take that suffering away. And people walk away all the time, but the scripture is rich. It's drenched in God speaking about his intentions in suffering, about his intentions in difficulty. Now, Paul says he'll boast in his weakness so that the power of Christ would rest upon him. <clears throat> now, I need to say kind of a final word about that. You need to understand that what Paul is saying here, what God's word is saying here, is not simply that you will go through a season of weakness that will then make you strong, and then you'll just continue to be strong. Because that's how we think about this sometimes. It's like, okay, I'll have to endure some hard stuff. It'll make me weak, but then I'll grow strong. What this is saying is you're going to spend your entire life looking weak in the eyes of those who don't see the things the way God sees them. You're going to look less capable, less strong, less able to depend upon yourself, less eloquent. You are going to look weak to everyone you encounter that does not see with the eyes of God. Permanent weakness, not a season of it. Now, the suffering may not endure forever. That's not saying that the suffering, the thorn, necessarily stays there forever. God knows when to remove that thorn, and he will do so when it's accomplished its purpose. But the weakness produced by that thorn stays. The limp stays. And that limp enables the power of God to be poured out through you and on you. It's one of the reasons we so need each other because the world will tell us again and again that we are weak and foolish. But it's the people of God who will surround us and go, oh, I see God pouring himself out in that place, man. Don't stop. Don't give up. Don't. We need you to press in and stay in the fight because God is pouring himself out in that in such a rich and powerful way. He's glorifying himself, and we see it even if the world cannot see it. We see the power of God resting upon you. Could I encourage you to, to make that a part of your language 
with other believers, with other followers of Jesus, when you see the power of Christ resting on them, tell them that. Tell them that. It's one of the ways God's grace might be poured out through you into them and his grace might become sufficient in the midst of suffering. Is to have another brother or sister say, oh, I know, man, I know this is hard, but can I just tell you that I see because of this the power of Christ resting upon you more and more and more. I mean, wouldn't we want want to say that to God? More, God. More. More power, more strength for your glory poured out upon us, weak vessels. So, here's what I'd like to do to close our time. I was thinking about this this week. We're going to sing Cornerstone. We're going to sing together. But I'd like to do this. We pray pretty often for folks who are enduring suffering to be healed, to have that thorn taken away. And certainly it's good, to, it's good to pray that. But I'm not sure that we often invite prayer within our midst and in the church for saying, okay, if God hasn't removed that thorn, let's pray that his power would be manifested, that his power would rest upon you and that you would find his grace sufficient. I'd like to take some time to pray for that, for those of you who are enduring suffering and difficulty those of you who find yourself in the midst of it. So let's do this. I don't often do this. Let me ask you to come down front. And I just want to pray over you. We're going to sing, and as we're singing, just make your way down front. And we just, as a church, want to pray over you if you're in the midst of difficulty that God would cause you, should he not remove that thorn, that God would cause his grace to be sufficient for you to see it and for his power then to be made perfect in your weakness. We want to pray that over you, you might find comfort in that, we would hope. So let's sing, So stand with me, and if you'd like for us to pray, it's a courageous act, I know, to come down, but come down, and we wanna pray.